Anna Fenton, and once again, I'm in town to bring you my new five-part series on addiction. So, welcome to Hooked. Take your pick. Alcohol, cocaine, heroin, sex, methamphetamine, mobile phones, online pornography, ketamine, gambling. There's never been so many ways to get high. Not that there's anything new about mind-altering substances. It probably all started when cavemen first discovered fermented grapes and magic mushrooms. Even in the Bible, Solomon warned about the evils of booze. English literature is littered with drugs. Charles Dickens enjoyed his nightly opium pipe. Robert Louis Stevenson wrote The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in 1886 during a six-day cocaine binge. Even today, mind-altering drugs remain a matter of perception. Firstly, Hong Kong musician Manilo, of course not his real name, talks about how he perceives the effects of drugs. And yes, we have changed his voice. Um, yeah, I think it's it's the the help it gives you to access you know, different worlds, or some people call it different parts of your brain. And so, um, does it help with your creativity? I think it. It, it, it helps reach areas of your subconscious mind where you didn't know existed, and hence um, there are normal writing and there are you know, um, normal-sounding songs where you could write very sober, and um, they're usually a lot more self-conscious. They're more structured. They follow. More of a, a generic approach, but one of the biggest influences you can get with the help of a substance is uh, depending on which. I mean, obviously, but but uh, most of them do break that barrier down, and it allows a sense of it, it, it absolutely. Destroys your self-consciousness, and you're able to test different sounds. You're able to break barriers. You, you, you're not self-conscious about the solo being too long. I mean, you know, you, you, you talk about you know the Led Zeppelin, Moby Dick, where you know you have a 10-minute drum solo, and um, you know it's I not not pointing any fingers, but I think that's probably <laughs> something to do with drugs. But um, um, But yes, I mean, does it help your creativity? Uh, it's not an external force. I, I, I don't believe that it is an external force that you know gives something to you. But it, it's it's something that allows you to access you know a, a different part of yourself. So it was always there, but it makes you uninhibited and more able to express yourself. I believe so. Yeah, I believe so, so. It's not going to make you creative if you weren't already creative. Yes, I, I, I don't think that you know you will. Right now, any particular drugs that take you to more creative places than others? Um, I, I think honestly, different drugs probably have different uh, effects on different people. Um, you know, uh, I'm pretty sure most of us have had experience with cannabis, and and then you'll see somebody passing out. You'll see somebody like me who just can't stop talking and um can't and and you know the the, the th it, it, i i feel like cannabis even though it's sometimes labeled as a drug for the less intelligent 
Um, I seem to very much disagree with that. I think, um, you know, for me, cannabis has has this weird effect where it allows me to access a very sophisticated um, part of my brain. You know, and I become very philosophical. I become um, um, very academic, even. Uh, I'm able to to quote passages from books that I forgotten I read. Oh, oh so it accesses all your old memories. It, it does, and it also is able to form, it's able to link um, <clears throat> unrelated objects or un, unrelated experiences that the, the generic world or you know, the, the generic society don't link together. You know, maybe a bunny rabbit and a snooker table. Allusions to Lewis Carroll, maybe. That was Manilow. Well, from bunny rabbits and snooker tables to the world of music, to meet composer Dr. Chris Coleman for his thoughts about the connections between drugs and creativity. There's definitely a very long association between the two, particularly between performers and um, the use of various mind-enhancing substances. If you look, for instance, at the texts that... Carl Orff used, which are medieval texts, they're full of drinking songs. So I think it's just a socialization thing, where socialization and music and alcohol or various drugs seem to go together. But as far as classical composers um, using various substances... The most famous example would be Hector Berlioz, whose Symphony Fantastique contains two movements that are an opium dream that he had, in which he's marched up to the scaffold, his head is cut off as he's looking at his beloved, and then she turns into a witch, and there's a dance in the final movement of a witches that came out of his actual use of opium, and he was very explicit in his letters and writings about how he found this to be um, of a great deal of use in enhancing his creativity. I think, though, the evidence is much stronger for composers using alcohol. Um, Beethoven had cirrhosis of the liver. Well, you don't get that from apple juice. <laughs> no, you certainly don't. Um, Mozart was known to be um, uh, a drinker. Robert Schumann, who had injured his hand and lost his career as a concert pianist, um, and also he developed syphilis, which you don't get from apple juice either, <laughs> um, had taken all kinds of um, substances to try to treat both of those, the, the pain and, and the syphilis, uh, he's known to have taken mercury and to have taken arsenic and I believe opium as well. Um, and of course, it didn't help him. He ended up dying insane alone in an insane asylum. So This is unfortunately the end for many people who indulge in, in these things, isn't it? So if we bring it more up to date, what examples for linking between music and drugs can we find? Well... We have all these um, famous rock musicians, Janis Joplin and uh, Jim Morrison, among 
among others. Um, but in fact, um, one of the greatest jazz band leaders, Tommy Dorsey, um, died because he was addicted to painkillers and took too many of them and one night uh, didn't wake up because he had choked to death on his own vomit. So it's not just a rock thing. Interestingly enough, there's a, a school of music uh, called minimalism, which has um, both East Coast and West Coast composers. One of the composers, Terry Riley, who wrote a very famous piece called In C, uh, is known and, uh, to have taken LSD and to have used it and, and very much thought that it enhanced his creative sense. But the East Coast composers, um, especially Philip Glass and um, Steve Reich also, Glass says that he tried drugs, but that he found that they inhibited his creativity, that he wasn't able to work, that he just felt tired the next day. And he decided that uh, if he wanted to compose, that he had to live a clean life. And so instead of drugs, he turns to yoga and to various martial arts and things. So if we think Kurt Cobain, the, the most recent batch of, of casualties, it's, it's an issue, isn't it, that it often ends in tears? Well, I think the evidence is very strong for that. To what extent enhancing your creativity is worth years of your life, I guess every creative artist needs to answer that for themselves. We've heard about the historical use and abuse of drugs for creativity and pleasure. But when does it become a problem? When does it become addiction? I travelled to Chiang Mai in Thailand to talk to Alistair Mordi, co-founder of rehab and mental health treatment centre, The Cabin. Addiction is not just about um, the abuse of drugs. It involves a number of behaviours as well. Um, but really, at its base, it is a biological disorder, often caused or exacerbated by environmental um, problems. So you could say adverse childhood experiences, for example, are overrepresented in people who have addiction problems. What would you say is an adverse childhood experience? Well, the Kaiser Hospital Group in America and the Center for Disease Control have, have studied that and, and come up with ten, what they think are ten broad um, examples of adverse childhood experiences. So anything from divorce of parents to an early bereavement to having siblings in, in prison, um, a number of uh, mental health issues in the family, things like that um, that a child's exposed to increase the likelihood that they will get addicted when they're an adult or during adolescence. But it's important to note that a genetic susceptibility is probably part of the process as well. So it's when those two things combine and then the opportunity to take drugs or learn how to gamble or whatever it is comes into play, then, then you, you're likely to, to see addiction. 
Now, what percentage of the population would you say is kind of genetically predisposed to become addicts in the right circumstances? Um, it, well, it wouldn't be a, a, a cut-off point, as it were. It's probably a continuum. So, so one of the primary biological causes um, or genetic causes, if you like, of addiction is um, the tendency to have um, poor, a poorly functioning dopamine system. So that's not a case of having too little dopamine. Now what is dopamine exactly? The dopamine is often thought of as being the brain's pleasure chemical. It's not really. Um, the, the brain's reward system has um, small hot spots that control pleasure, but it's a reward chemical. Now reward is very, very different to pleasure. So I'll give you an example. If you took a nurse or a police or someone like that who has a very difficult job and you ask them why they do their job they'll tell you it's because it's rewarding so that doesn't mean it's fun so reward has something to do with meaning right. like you find something rewarding because it's meaningful mm. and that's, that's what the reward system controls it controls um, goals, achieving goals focus, things like that so, so, so purpose really. purpose Purpose, meaning, and goal-seeking and finding. That's what the dopamine system is really doing, rather than just giving you pleasure. So it's not just getting a high and getting fun. There's much more to it than that. There is. That's, that's what it looks like to people. It, it just looks like it's pleasure-seeking. But we know this. Um, we know that it's not just about pleasure, because there are some addictions. In fact, all addictions eventually become very unpleasurable, obviously. But people keep doing it. So clearly, it's not about pleasure. It's about the meaning that's contained in it. And, and what any addiction will be doing is shoring up dopamine function in the midbrain. So too little dopamine uh, or too, uh, too much dopamine causes psychosis and diseases like Parkinson's. So it's, uh, addiction's not like that. It's not caused by low dopamine. It's caused by there not being um, several reasons, one of which, for example, might be there aren't enough dopamine receptor sites um, receiving the dopamine. In your brain. In your brain. So whereas an ordinary person feels quite rewarded or sucks up quite a lot of meaning out of hanging out with their friends or doing their job or being at a family gathering, somebody who has um, a poorly functioning dopamine receptor sites might be doing the exact same thing but not quite getting the sense of meaning or reward out of it. So they need to go and find some reward somewhere else. So a dopamine pill wouldn't fix it then? No, because dopamine doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. It doesn't quite work like that. You can't give somebody a dopamine pill. And in, in essence, that's what addictions are. They're a dopamine pill. You know, they're <clears throat> increasing dopamine function overall in the reward system via a behavior, usually, or a behavior that has meaning attached to it. Right, so if we took a, your typical, well, a, a bored teenager, doesn't feel part of the crowd, doesn't belong, is that what you're seeing as possibly somebody who's going to really get a, an instant buzz if they have a drink or try drugs? Yeah, absolutely. Um, they should be getting reward from going through their natural stages of development in a healthy way. So a teenager, teenage years, as everyone knows, is all about identification. So if you get a teenager who's failing to identify then yes, that immediately right there is, is um, a risk factor for addiction. It's not a cause. There are no direct causes of addiction. There are only risk factors that, that build on top of each other, mm. if you like. And then there are also protective factors. So really you should look at addiction being caused by a lack of protective factors rather than an overabundance of risk factors. So where's, where parents are absent, um, friendship groups are not constructive, environment is alienating, no traditional belief systems, religions or anything like that creating 
um, a sense of being held or a sense of being a part of something. When all of those protective factors are gone, it makes addiction much more likely. Is that why in a place like Hong Kong, which is full of expatriates who are far from home, cut off from family, friends, structure, is that why we see so much addiction in Hong Kong? Absolutely. If you look at, um, and, and, and this proves that, that addiction is not about poverty or misfortune. So, for example, if you look at sub-Saharan Africa, with the amount of troubles and, and, and problems that it has, and traumas, um, but it doesn't have the world's highest addiction rates. And the reason for that is because quite, there's quite a lot of traditional culture that's still intact. Extended family systems are still intact. And in, in fact, addiction is really um, a disease of the developed world. So it's the world's most developed nations that have the greatest addiction problems. So whether it's the abuse of opiates, gambling, pornography addiction or anything like that, you're going to find higher rates of those things in countries that have developed to the furthest extent possible. And you're probably going to find the lowest rates in the countries that are the least developed. So if you had to kind of summarise why it is that these developed countries are seeing this rise in addiction, what, what would you say it is? A uh, lack of meaning. A lack of meaning and a lack of belonging. So um, although modern people in developed nations have a very high standard of living, we could make an argument that they feel less sense of meaning and less sense of purpose than uh, a man whose um, job in life is to take the goat herd out across the mountain and make sure they don't get eaten by any wolves. So there's a lot of sense of meaning and purpose in a job like that. You know, and that kind of person is very uh, connected to their environment and their community. And we are highly social primates. Uh, we become ill when we're not um, correctly socially placed. Yeah, so um, one of the things that can help with that is to directly intervene in our brain chemistry by boosting our dopamine system with drugs or behaviours that are very thrilling or rewarding or give us a sense of meaning. Right, so the drug basically makes us, is a substitute for feeling one of the gang, one of the crowd, yes. part of the group. Yeah, I think uh, that addiction is a substitute for meaning, it's a substitute for tradition, it's a substitute for an intact culture. It's a substitute for a sense of purpose. It's a substitute for a spiritual dimension to your life, which all humans used to have. And that's not to say that it wasn't inevitable that religion would decline in the West. It's inevitable that as science advances, religion will decline. And we might say that's a good thing, and it is. Um, you know, medical advances, for example, nobody's going to decry, you know, all the wonderful medical advances that we've made. But one... But, we shouldn't underestimate the effect that the developments had on our psychological health as well, which is that we're more atomized. We live in small nuclear families. We don't feel part of um, a group like we once did, and that's having an effect. Because we are social apes at we heart, are. aren't we? Yeah, we are social primates. So if I said crystal ball, Ali, what, what would you see for the future? Is this situation just going to get worse? Uh, yeah, it will get worse before it gets better because the amount of vectors for the illness are growing. So a vector is um, something which increases the transmission of a disease. So if you think uh, a mosquito is a vector for malaria, well, the vectors for addiction are growing. So smartphones and the Internet would be one example. Um, access to pornography that's quite widely available compared to what it would have been before the Internet. Mm. Um, highly palatable foodstuffs that are increasing all the time. Um, uh, synthetic drugs 
like fentanyl, for mm. example, that are increasing all the time. The amount of um, synthetic opioids we have now available. Um, opioids is, being things like oxycotton yeah, and oxycontin, tramadol. That's right, tramadol. Um, that derive ultimately from the opium poppy, but that are made in labs. Um, so th- that's increasing all the time. And uh, also our ability to manufacture drugs on a large scale is increasing all the time. Um, so people are finding more ways of getting addicted, and they have an increasing need to get addicted because they're not getting their basic human needs met, bizarrely, even though they live in a very advanced economy. That was co-founder of The Cabin, Alistair Mordy. So now we know what addiction is, I asked Dr Seamus McCauley, lead counsellor for The Cabin Hong Kong, how do you know if you have the illness of addiction? Well, often... um the person who's got it doesn't recognise they've got it. But if you wanted um, three simple ways to determine um, what might be the matter, um, the first would be to ask, how often do you lose control when you do what you do, whether that be drink or use drugs or gamble or whatever? Um, And by that, I mean... If you feel that you are not in control, for example, if you're drunk, you're not in control. So you have, by definition, lost control. Um, If you're high, you have lost control. You're not in control. So that would be the first thing. How often do I lose control? So it would be like saying, I'm going to go out tonight and have two drinks and be home by nine, and finding you're still in the bar at midnight and you've had ten drinks. Yeah, absolutely. Very simple and a very common experience. The next one would be, and this is actually um, a, re- a, really imp- a really important one, and it's about attempting to control. So the exercise of either trying to cut down, quit or moderate becomes either impossible or if you're attempting it and it becomes intensely uncomfortable that's usually an indication that something is abnormal. This is not a normal phenomenon, basically. So you're trying to cut down or quit, or you're maybe quitting, but you're unable to stay quit or unable to cut down. Yeah, it's not. It's the inability to stay stopped, basically. The third one is, despite all the negative consequences that might have occurred as a consequence of your behaviour and your inability to control, there's a repeated pattern of going back to the same behaviour. Um, and if you put all of those, all those, those three things together, um, you're talking about the illness of addiction. You have crossed the threshold, basically. Dr Seamus McCauley. So how available are drugs in Hong Kong? I asked addictions counsellor and addict in recovery, Grant. The situation is critical. Uh, I have personally seen uh, a wide range of people from um, socioeconomic groups, uh, cocaine, uh, ketamine, uh, crack cocaine is also um, on the rise, uh, and not to mention uh, crystal meth, also commonly known as, as Bing. So we are finding people at the upper echelons of society right down to the grassroots, I'm afraid. So it's no respecter of race or education or wealth, is it, addiction? Absolutely not. No, it isn't. It's, um, it, it holds no hostages. 
And what are we seeing? I, I've heard from the police that there's an increase in heroin on the streets at the moment and that meth, uh, ice, is incredibly cheap, and that's a big problem. Yes, that's true. Um, I, I, I used to live in a, in a building in, in Aberdeen, um, and there were dealers in this building, and there were regular police raids, and uh, they were heroin dealers. And I got to see firsthand uh, how destructive uh, addiction really is. People with limbs missing, um, horrendous things, um, really horrendous things. I've also seen an increase in crystal meth purely because it's a lot cheaper and it keeps one high for much longer. It's a 72-hour arc, isn't it, crystal meth? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, people polishing uh, the floor with a toothbrush, um, believing that their cameras, that they're being watched. Um, absolutely horrendous uh, behavior. Um, it's, it's quite frightening, really. Um, and then that is also mixed with uh, over-the-counter uh, drugs. Now tell me about these opiates, these Oxycontin and um, Tramadol, and we're hearing that fentanyl is coming soon. What are these? Uh, fentanyl is already here. They're already cutting heroin with it. Uh, I was speaking to an addict recently who um, has been coming in and going out, getting help, relapsing, um, going back to... Uh, his drug of choice, um, well, I like to say drug of no choice, really. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and and he's, he's talking about fentanyl being mixed with heroin. Already, uh, that's already. very, very scary, um, isn't it? And as it? we've seen in the United States, it's, it's got devastating uh, consequences to the population. Yes, and there. it's going through Melbourne in Australia at the moment. Yes. Um, in terms of over-the-counter medication, Vicocodine, um, there's a whole lot of generics too, so they've all got different names and stuff, but uh, they are available. And, and it, highly addictive. And highly addictive, absolutely. And, of course, there's the denial uh, around that is, well, it's medicine. Well, it's, just because the doctor prescribed it to you doesn't mean you can't get addicted to it, like sleeping pills, right? Absolutely. Um, and it has, you know, what we call um, this unmanageability you know, this powerlessness, this, 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 well, um, once I've in ingested it, I break out in this phenomenon of craving and... Um, wanting more. Wanting more. Wanting more. There is never enough. Uh, there is never enough. And that's the story of addiction, really, isn't and it? And that is the story of addiction. And, and people in a, in, a, in, a, in a city that's filled with stress and, uh, you know, there's this constant... Um, this, this obsession, really, that um, I'm going to get fixed, that something outside of me is going to fix me. And, and from my own personal experience and people that I've worked with, uh, this, this, this isn't the case. And I'm afraid that, you know, narcotics has become, uh, it's become a, a, um, something that, that people are using to escape from the stress, from their pain, um, uh, from the mundane, and, and it's actually the mundane is where the peace is, so to speak. So, uh, you know, whether it's a, a dealer, a street dealer, or a, or a pharmacy, or a doctor, a mind-mood-altering substance um, is what it is. And, and it can be addictive. And it can be addictive. Uh, it, it can be devastatingly addictive. I was chatting to recovering addict Grant. 
Thank you to him and to all my guests. More from them later in the series. Next week, recovering addicts tell their stories. Join me then.